Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome. My name is Associate Professor Renee Ryan and it is with great pleasure that I welcome you all here today on behalf of Sydney Ideas and the Science in Australia Gender Equity Project at the University of Sydney. Today we are going to be hearing from our distinguished guests, Davis O'Bell and Jessica Bloom. But first I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. As we share our own knowledge and experiences today, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I am the academic director of the SAGE project at the University of Sydney. SAGE is a national program promoting gender equity and diversity in the science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine areas. It is based on a UK program called the Athena Swan Charter, which is an evaluation and accreditation framework that aims to improve gender equity policies and practices in the STEM M fields. Athena Swan has been operating for over 10 years in the UK, and it has shown significant results in improving gender diversity, bolstering women's leadership roles, and improving workplace culture for all staff, both men and women, academic and professional staff, and also now students. Indeed, in the UK, the program has recently expanded to include all areas, um, including the humanities, arts and social sciences. The Glass Universe is a wonderful story about the hidden history of a group of remarkable women whose contributions to the field of astronomy changed our understanding of the stars and our place in the universe. The stories of the women in this book are inspiring, poignant and motivating. It is interesting to reflect on the challenges these women faced just to get an opportunity to participate in the workforce or for their work to be recognised. Today, challenges still exist. There is now a focus on pay equity, accessibility to parental leave and childcare, workplace flexibility and promotion and leadership opportunities for women. These are some of the key focus areas of the SAGE project, but also of the work that the university is doing in in, um, its culture strategy. As we continue on our journey to improve equity, diversity and inclusion, both at the university and beyond, it is extremely useful to look back at the stories um, of the past for motivation and inspiration, but also to learn from the amazing women that have trod this path before us. So Davis Sobel, who has been already travelling around Australia um, at the Byron Writers' Festival and um, visiting other universities, is the author of several books. In addition to The Glass Universe, which will be discussed tonight, Davis has also authored Longitude, Galileo's Daughter, The Planets and A More Perfect Heaven. She has co-authored six books, including Is Anyone Out There with astronomer Frank Drake. Dava is a former New York Times science reporter and a long-time science contributor to Harvard Magazine, Audubon, Discover, Life, Omni and The New Yorker. She continues to write for several online and print publications. She also lectures around the world and teaches scientific writing at various universities and is a frequent guest on national public radio and also television. 
Deva is the recipient of many prestigious awards, and I'm just going to mention two. Um, one is the Individual Public Service Award from the National Science Board for fostering awareness of science and technology among broad segments of the public. And also in 2008, Deva was um, presented with the Klumke Roberts Award from the Astronomical Society of the Pacific for increasing the public understanding and appreciation of astronomy. Jessica Bloom um, has just completed her PhD thesis in astrophysics at the University of Sydney, and I'm not going to attempt to describe her thesis, but she did investigate galaxy interactions and the Tully-Fisher relation, which is used to calculate cosmic distances. Jessica is passionate about physics outreach and has worked with the ABC and the Discovery Channel, as well as appearing as a regular guest on Dr. Carl Krujanewski's Shirtload of Science podcasts. As well as teaching first and second year physics here at the university, uh, over the past two years, Jessica has also spent four weeks as astronomer in residence at Uluru, leading star tours and giving talks. When she is not talking about physics and the universe, Jessica is a circus performer, a contortionist, hooper, acrobat, and fire spinner. So we won't be seeing any of that tonight, I don't think. Um, <laughs> so welcome to you both, um, and come up to the stage. I should just mention, so the format tonight will be a conversation between Jessica and Deva, um, which will be followed by questions from the audience. And after the event, Deva will be signing copies of her book up at the Glee Books um, table upstairs. So thank you. All right. Well, good evening, everybody, and good evening, Deva. Good evening. Welcome. So let's kick off. So talking about the glass universe, I'm really interested in how you actually discovered the story. I discovered the story from, a, from an astronomer, someone I was interviewing for a, for a magazine. Her name was Wendy Friedman, and she was at the time in charge of a Hubble telescope key project about the expansion rate of the universe. And she mentioned the name Henrietta Swan Leavitt, as have no relation to Athena Swan, but uh, Henrietta Swan Leavitt, who had lived a century earlier, but had done work that was fundamental to the Hubble project. So that was a surprise, and I'd never heard of Henrietta Swan Leavitt. And when I went to read about her, I found that she was working in a whole room full of women at the Harvard College Observatory, which was even more surprising, uh, because Harvard is a very male place. Uh, and here were all these women doing astronomy in the 1800s. So I thought that sounded like a really good story. It is a really good story. And I know we were talking a little bit earlier about the fact that it's so surprising, particularly to me, you know, I'm an astronomer, I consider myself a feminist, I talk a lot about both of those things, and I had no idea about any of this. And there seems to be this sort of long history of women who've made really significant contributions to science that just don't get talked about. And it's, it's sort of odd. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about why that might be. Well, I have a couple of thoughts about it. I don't know if I know the answer, but um, one thought is that the, the science has marched on. And although the things they did were of great importance, and they received credit in their lifetimes, and were even world famous in their lifetimes. 
it's hard to keep all the stories in active memory all the time. But then, then there's a sadder part about how the way women's contributions get discounted. And as you were saying, as someone who is current in the field and especially interested in women's contributions, why didn't you know about these women? And someone like you, a little bit older, who's now a full professor of astronomy at Harvard uh, named Alyssa Goodman, was one of the people I approached to read the manuscript to make sure that all the astronomy was correct. And she was so shocked by the amount of genuine scientific work that these women were doing that she got completely distracted and stopped being the fact checker I wanted her to be. Um, and she, she said, I, I, I work here, I've heard these names, but I always felt they were doing something cute or quaint. I didn't appreciate the, the level of, of the scientific contribution. So um, I think this reflects a widespread sense that if a woman does something, then it couldn't have been very difficult in the first place. <laughs> yes, it's sort of, you'd say it's imposter syndrome, but it's sort of from the outside. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, that's an interesting point because I'd often absorbed the idea that, you know, well, of course women were as capable as men were, you know, women are intelligent, women are good at science, of course, and the reason that there isn't a long history of women making valuable contributions to science is because there were all of these roadblocks put in the way, you know, they weren't allowed to study, expectations that they would quit, you know, when they had children, and all of that, and obviously to a certain extent that's that's very true and, and is, you know, quite sad. Um, but it's also not the whole story at all, because there are women who, despite there, everything, yeah. they did actually overcome all those obstacles. And I think it's, it's even especially um, more surprising and, and sort of sadder for me that this is so hidden, because the kind of women who overcame those obstacles were often really interesting people. You know, you've got to think about somebody who, who would sort of say, no, you know, I'm not going to listen to anybody, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. I mean... They're, they're characters, right? They're, they're weird and funny and outrageous. And they're, they're good stories, as, as you've shown. Yeah. Well, and there are more of them. You, you used the term hidden figures, and I wonder how many people have seen the movie? How many people have read the book? <laughs> I'm going to tell you the movie is a big exaggeration of some of the events, but it's a good movie. So I was also just wondering generally, I mean, you've written extensively about science, and I was wondering what motivated you to do that? Because it's the most interesting thing. That's, that's good. We're going to finish yeah, there, everybody. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I've been interested in science since I was a child and uh, was lucky to have parents who thought that was okay for a girl, uh, even way back when I was a child. Um, and I was encouraged through school. The only sad part of all of that was that science writing or science communication was not a designated career path. So nobody made that connection for me. And I always thought I'd have to choose one or the other. 
And this led to my being a completely lost soul all the way through university uh, until I wound up by a few coincidences working at a newspaper and having the freedom because I was hired to work on the women's pages so people didn't worry too much about what I was writing about. And it was the year of the first Earth Day, so I started writing about Earth Day-related topics, and even then I didn't know it was called science writing. But I felt I'd found where I belonged, which was a big relief. Seems like you managed, even without somebody telling you that it was possible, you did okay. <laughs> I think I've done okay, yeah. And why astronomy? I mean, obviously, I, I, I have an answer to that question for myself, but... Would you like to answer it first? No, I think I'd yours kind is probably more interesting. <laughs> Not necessarily, no. Oh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tell us yours. Um, I suppose for me, it's the scale of it. It's incredible to me that you know, we're on this tiny planet and I'm one person. And, you know, a hundred years ago, we didn't even know that there were other galaxies. And now I can sit down at my laptop and there's a galaxy with 10 to the 11 solar masses just sitting there. And it's on the one hand, really humbling, but on the other hand, I think really encouraging and inspiring to think that we dare to try to understand something that's honestly just incomprehensible. You know, I don't know what 10 to the 11 looks like. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. um, but still, we try, and I think we do pretty well. That's a great answer. <laughs> I, um, I went to a public lecture that Carl Sagan gave before he was famous, and uh, that, um, that really changed my life. Because he was... <laughs> and he was talking about the likelihood of discovering planets of other stars, which now we hear about them every week, but at the time there were none. Mm. And he was uh, drawing schematic diagrams of what other solar systems would look like. And they all looked kind of like our solar system. Uh, but now it turns out they don't look anything like our solar system. So that's been interesting to follow. Being wrong is often, I think, more interesting that's, than being right. That's what science is all about. <laughs> yeah. People, people tend to, people who are not informed about science tend to think it's a body of facts mm. instead of an endeavor. Yeah. And um, I think the endeavor part, the passion part, is much more interesting anyway. I think that's true. And I was actually, I mean, even just separate from the, the sort of incredible story of the women doing this work, I mean, the work itself that they do in the glass universe is incredible. And I think the sort of the way that it laid the foundations for where we are now really struck me. So there's a really great um, little passage where it describes uh, looking through the photographic plates. And on one of them, next to a sort of smudge, someone has written galaxy, question um, mark? Because, you know, they, they didn't know whether or not they were extragalactic or whether they were part of the Milky Way. Um, and that was really astonishing to me to sort of see that this is the history of the science really kind of developing. Yeah, this was the dawn of astrophysics. Yeah. So not just the understanding of the relationship of 
the Earth and the Milky Way to the rest of the universe, but what the stars were made of, what their evolutionary trajectory was, uh, their motions, their variability, all of that grew out of this project. And it is sort of almost a Galileo-level leap. You know, you think about, we, we know about the great leaps in astronomy, and I don't think this one gets nearly as much credit as it deserves because it is a really big conceptual jump to go from studying motion and sort of images to actually studying chemical composition and looking at the physics. And this all came out of this project. It, it was a big jump. And the fact that the observatory director was a physicist mm. had a lot to do with the direction his research took. And there were some people who worried about the fact that he was a physicist, not an astronomer. Um, but that turned out to be a good thing. And then he also had this enlightened attitude about bringing in women to work, partly because it was economical to hire women. Uh, but then he also did this wonderful outreach of, of encouraging women who had studied astronomy, who had access to a telescope to make their own observations and report to the observatory to have their work included. There is a sort of really great flow, I think, in this project where it was funded largely by female benefactors. And then you had the male director of the astronomy and the uh, director of the observatory, sorry, and then the women who did the observations. It really was a very female-led project. And yeah. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about what you see as the role of male champions of women. Because there's been some discussion backwards and forwards. And I think, I mean, I personally, without you know, answering my own question. Um, okay, you can <laughs> Sort of see merit on both sides, because on the one hand, it's, it's obviously incredibly important to get men on board and to get support. Uh, first of all, because, you know, there are just more of them in senior positions. Um, so it's just practical, but also because this is something that needs to involve everybody. But then on the other hand, you also don't want to downplay the role of female leaders. Um, I was wondering if you had sort of any... That was more of a statement than a question, let's be honest, but any <laughs> thoughts? There we go, there's a question mark. Well, yeah, I think whoever, whoever is running the observatory determines the culture of the place. And uh, whether it's welcoming to women has a lot to do with the attitude of the director, mm. whether that director be a man or a woman. That's true. Even, I mean, so obviously the women were, in a sense, lucky to come under, you know, the leadership of, of someone who was very supportive. But I was also um, amused, not sure, sadly amused, um, by the discussion. I think it was Mina Fleming who talked about the fact that she um, had started out, you know, not a college graduate, not the kind of background that you would have expected to lead to the success that she had. And she had this really senior position at the observatory, was doing great work, had all of this responsibility. But when the time came to ask for a pay rise, suddenly, you know, her salary was, was sufficient for a woman, which is right. sort of eerily discouraging. We're not that much further along. <laughs> right, that's the worst part of it. And sort of this discouragement of ambition, I think. I don't think her ambition was discovered. Only her desire for equal pay. Ah, right. <laughs> so you can be ambitious to contribute more, but yes, not to be and remunerated. She <laughs> yeah, she was encouraged to contribute more at the same pay level. 
Mm. But it, and it's strange because it was sort of in the same breath he was nominating her for prizes and championing her against everybody, you know, people who said that it was, you know, you couldn't have a woman getting certain awards, but then there was this sort of big blind spot. And it sort of makes me wonder... I can't excuse yeah. him for that. <laughs> sort of... If we, it's, it's a problem that I, I feel like we ought to have solved over the past hundred years. Any yeah, ideas on said, how, I think you know, do you have this It's secret? sadder that it's a problem now mm. than the fact it was a problem then. Yeah. When, when the, even the presence of these women in the jobs they had was so singular. True. But then I guess actually also I found it quite, at the same time, quite inspiring that she actually asked. Because that's another, I mean, that's another problem that faces women is that it can right. be difficult to actually ask. But she had, even with all of the, and the huge class distinctions, because she started as a maid, didn't she? She did. Yeah. I would actually, I think, I mean, I'm assuming that not everybody here has read the book. All right, it's, it's, we don't know, who, we don't know you. There's so no quiz. <laughs> but that was actually, her story was one that I, I really found fascinating. And I was hoping that maybe you could share some of the details, if I could put you on the spot. Yes, certainly. So her, her name was Williamina Fleming, and she was from Scotland, from Dundee, and uh, emigrated to the United States with her husband. And uh, then he disappeared from her life at when she was pregnant, which explains why she took a job as a domestic servant, even though at home she had been a schoolteacher. She had nothing more than a high school education, but high school was really good then and uh, was enough for her to be a teacher. But as soon as she came to work in the observatory, the director and his wife, she was in the residence part of the building, and the, uh, the director recognized how bright she was and so moved her over to the observatory taught her how to do calculations. She had a gift for mathematics and also showed her the glass plate photographs uh, as a way to, to look at them in terms of um, the, the, the comparative brightness of stars. And then they, the Pickerings helped her go home to Scotland to give birth. And she was so grateful that she named her baby for the director. So he was Edward Charles Pickering Fleming. And uh, the Pickerings promised her employment if she returned. And she came back and worked at the observatory the rest of her life, uh, became the first woman to hold a university title at Harvard as the curator of astronomical photographs and uh, managed to, even despite the low salary, put her son through MIT. And uh, so he became a mining engineer. And... Um, and it's yeah. an incredible story. And um, in that, so in the same passage, I was, I was actually rereading it this morning because I, I remembered really liking it. And I wanted to make you tell the story. Um, <laughs> it was interesting to me because she was writing about, you know, that she had had all of this generosity and nominated for prizes and, you know, then there was the issue of the money. And then she also did make the point that she was also in charge of a household in the way that the other male, uh, you know, astronomical staff were In not. a sense, she, she had a man's responsibility yes, as and head of as the household. Yeah, as well as a, a woman's. And 
I mean, she really does sound like an absolutely incredible person. Yeah. You think about everything that she overcame and the kind of courage that That's must have had. That's her standing at the back of the room. <laughs> yeah. Sort of stern. Yeah. But so, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to shatter an illusion and I, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you mentioned earlier that this photograph was staged. I believe it's a staged photograph, yes. She is looking at the camera. That, that actually and there, there, there are other pictures taken on that same day. So um, I feel they were photographing the sky and they must have thought, we should document what we're doing here. But it's actually, it's interesting to me that she's, she's chosen to look that way at the camera as well. You know, she's, she's clearly... Um, she's in charge. Yeah, she's yeah. a strong and ambitious woman who's yeah. done a lot. And that's, you know, she's not sort of smiling you know, gaily, it's, this is serious. I, I think that's sort of a lesson in some ways, that that's just how she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, again, I know I, I sort of, I'm repeating myself, but I wish I'd known more of her story when I was going through, you know, undergraduate and all of that, because it's incredible. And so, and there's another, Cecilia Payne Gaposhkin, I think I'm mm-hmm. butchering that, but hopefully anybody speaks Russian in the audience will forgive me. That's good. Um, Who was, I think, the first person to ever gain a PhD in astronomy at Harvard. That's right. Sydney University followed suit a mere 75 or so years later. Uh, So that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and And again, you know, but there are all of these myths going around that, you know, women are just not great at science. And these are really good counterexamples. I think one of the most stunning examples of of that irony was the Harvard president uh, not too many years ago made a public statement about how women's brains just weren't wired for math and science, very much like the the Google issue this week. Um, And he had this history right under his nose. Right, he should have known better. I mean... Yes. <laughs> so, again, in the book, um, I remember there's a... Um, somebody says, you know, well, we live in such an enlightened time. And my, my first impression was that that was kind of comical. You know, of, of course you didn't live in an enlightened time. Look at, look at what was happening to you um, as far as women were concerned. But, I mean, obviously to them it was, and there had been great progress. And it sort of it made me think a little bit because we do sometimes consider that we live in an enlightened time now, but I wonder what the perspective 100 years on from now might be and where we fall down. Your guess is as good as mine, maybe better. I, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> but it sort of, it must But have, that was yeah. Mrs. Fleming, and, and she was being ironic that this is supposed to be an enlightened age, and yet I am not being paid. Mm at the same level as men. That's true. And then oh, there was another, there was the, um, soci- it was a, sorry, I'm, I'm terrible, so I'm forgetting the name. It was the Society for Women in Science, I think, that um, decided that it was going to stop because it had achieved all of its goals in about, you know, the early 1900s. That's right. Yeah. I think, I still find that hard to believe how they could have convinced themselves that, but in that small group, I mean, they, they were all accomplished women with roles as professors. So they were satisfied. They had one final meeting and gave out some prizes, monetary prizes. And one of them was to one of the Harvard women. 
to Annie Jump Cannon. Mm. And she turned around and used that money to endow her own prize because she didn't think women had really made it yet. And so her prize was to encourage young women interested in astronomy to continue their careers. And that prize is still awarded annually. And Annie Jump Cannon is another incredible story, I think. And she was deaf. Yes, she was mostly deaf. But I'm, I'm happy to add that by using a hearing aid, she was able to enjoy the opera and concerts. In the university archives, where I read her diaries and correspondence, there were boxes of programs from concerts, libretti from operas. So the deafness didn't really exclude her from those activities, but she could tune out mm. the world at will which was probably great for her concentration. <laughs> well, now you put it that way. <laughs> but it I must... know, because my, my mother had that same problem, and when she turned off the hearing aid, she just wasn't disturbed by anything or anybody. <laughs> so actually, just I wanted to turn slightly from the book, because I was reading up on you. Sounded better in my head. Um, and I've heard you're fascinated by solar eclipses. Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm about to see my ninth one. Really? At the end of this month. Mm -hmm. So why? I mean... Have you seen one? No. You would, <laughs> wouldn't be asking if you had. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, hope, I hope you will have that experience soon and often. Me too. I actually, I actually have a tragic story about the transit of Venus. Um, I was really excited because the transit of Venus was going to happen on my 21st birthday. And I was, this is perfect. This is, this is going to be amazing. And my friends had set up some telescopes, not, you know, for me, but coincidentally, um, at Sydney University. And this was, this was amazing. I think it may have been the rainiest day of the year. Um, mm. It was apocalyptic. Uh, so no, no transit of Venus for me. So I think that's kind of maybe jaundiced me about you, eclipse and you won't trans see that. transits in general. Yeah, but transits are transits of Venus are rare. I mean, there's no way you could see another one unless really there's healthily. remarkable <laughs> advance in longevity <laughs> research. Um, lots of greens, but, but lots of eclipses in your future. Well, that's yeah, it's encouraged. But, but at the same time, I'm sort of I'm a bit petulant about the whole thing. You know, it's, Have, having been rained out once. Yeah, I'm not going to get yeah. burned again. Yeah. So how yeah. many, you see, nine, nine. This will be my yeah. ninth, yeah. That's right. I've seen lunar eclipses, which are... Not the same no, thing. No, no. <laughs> I am not aware that of that. Count. It's, it's very beautiful, but it's, it's not as dramatic. It's not as stunning, shocking, awe-inspiring. So do you travel to I see do. any I, sort of crazy stories? Yes. Um, I've, in fact, I, I travel only for that reason. Wow. I mean, I travel for book promotion and to see eclipses, and that's it for me. But it's not limiting, because mm -hmm. if, you, if you really have the opportunity to chase them, and I've, I've been to some of the most exotic places as a lecturer on a trip, so I didn't have to pay for the trip, oh, because this is an expensive hobby, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the one coming up is in the United States, so yeah, I don't have that's to super go that close far. But <laughs> 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 well, once I go home, it will be super close to me. And, and so, um, 
And, and the book starts off with the, uh, the heiress who funded so much of the Harvard research, uh, a story of her participation in an eclipse expedition where she traveled from New York to the Wyoming Territory, which is more than a trip of more than 2,000 miles, in 1878. And she voluntarily turned her back to the eclipse. She was secluded inside a tent because her job was to count out the seconds of totality for the observers. And the thought was that if she actually watched the eclipse, she would be dumbfounded by it and lose count, which you could understand. I, I couldn't, yeah. but you could. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you see your first, was it? It was 1991, and uh, it was in Mexico, and it was the longest one I've ever seen. So in a sense, it's still the best one. Mm. Because the longer it lasts, the more thrilling it is, and even a little bit scary. Because I admit, I started to wonder if the world would just stay that way. And you really have to try to imagine what people thought mm. when it just happened and no one was expecting it. That must have been, yeah, it must yeah. have been absolutely... If you, if you find it scary... Sort of knowing, exactly knowing exactly what's, what's going happening, on yeah, to the minute when it will begin and end. Mm. Yeah. So I was wondering if there were any... I mean, I've sort of made you recount some of my favourite anecdotes from the book, but I was wondering if there was anything, any sort of things that you wanted to share particularly that we haven't talked about? Um, well, maybe this would be a good time to show some of the images. Yes, okay. And, and talk a little bit about um, what's happening in them. So we, we've already said this is, this is a rather staged uh, picture, but, but that's what they would have looked like, busy at their work. Um, this is what the observatory looked like, very nice wooden building, and the the wing that does not have a dome was the director's residence. So that's where Mrs. Fleming was hired as a maid. Um, and, it, and it was a wooden building. But as soon as these photographic plates started amassing, the director began seriously fearing fire. And uh, in 1893, had a brick building constructed just a little bit beyond the observatory, specifically to hold the plates. And that building still exists. It's been enlarged a couple of times. Sorry, could I actually just uh, interrupt there? And I hope I'm not sort of spoiling the end of the no. book. But it was sort of ironic what actually happened. Yes, so <laughs> all this fear of fire. And about a year and a half ago, the plates were actually threatened by a flood. So there was a, a, a water main break underneath the building, and 60,000 of the plates were submerged and uh, had to be carried out by volunteers to a cold, dry environment. And not a single plate was broken in that process. Incredible. So this is one of the images. Uh, some of you will recognize this as Orion's belt. Uh, and just the stars look so overexposed in this picture, but that's because it's a um, a rather long exposure. There's a little there's a little dark shape in that image that looks like the head of a horse, 
uh, now known as the Horsehead Nebula, a rather uh, favored feature of, of many amateurs and professionals. And Mrs. Fleming was the first person to point that out. Uh, and here she is. Um, she has the most piercing eyes mm. uh, that, that always uh, astounds me in photos of her. So in um, the cupboards she's standing in front of, that, those, those were the, the cupboards built to hold the plates. And she was in charge of organizing them and having a catalog system so that any particular one could be retrieved at any moment. And they needed to be retrieved. If uh, a new discovery came up, people wanted to look at that part of the sky uh, earlier in time. You could go back. When, a, when an asteroid was discovered, it was possible to look for it in old plates and then be able to figure out the orbit. So um, they, 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 they were like a library, and they had to be uh, instantly accessible. Here's another image. Um, that's beautiful. I, I believe that's Halley's Comet. Mm. Um, but in truth, I don't remember which comet it is. Uh, most of the images are like this. They're negatives, so the stars appear black on white. And so that, one's, that one there is one of the ones that they would have been discussing whether or not it was a galaxy, am I correct? I think by this point, they might have known mm. that it was. Oh, because it was discovered partway through the cataloging. Um, yeah. So the spirals had, had shown up in pictures, uh, but the question of whether they were within the Milky Way galaxy or galaxies in their own right far beyond was a question up till the end of the 1920s. Uh, so this is Annie Jump Cannon. Uh, she was the first woman who came to the observatory as a telescope observer, not, not a person limited to studying images on plates. She had been a student. The bottom picture is the uh, physics lab at Wellesley College, where she had been a student, but then she went back as an assistant uh, teacher in the laboratory. And her teacher at Wellesley had taken classes with Pickering, even before he got to Harvard, he, he had taught physics at MIT, and he always let women who were interested in learning come into his classes. So Miss Cannon had the benefit of all those connections. Do we know? Sorry to interrupt. I, before, do we know why he? He was such was, a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> he just he just had a great, broad-minded attitude. He was hmm. a very unusually generous person, put a lot of his salary back into the observatory, and he also was so committed to the science that he was looking to get grant money for other institutions, encouraging. He wanted to manage a fund that could, could fund projects anywhere in the world so that astronomers who were stuck for money needed some help could just apply to this fund. Uh, so here's a typical plate that Miss Cannon would have been looking at. Um, the little tiny smudges all over, those are the spectra of individual stars. And then she would number them all and then call out, she'd be concentrating, looking at this plate in a 
frame, an illuminated frame, and then she would assess the type of star it was. That was a major thrust of this work, was to create a classification system for the stars. What do you think? It's not for everyone. Well, yeah. so what, what I'm actually staring at is, and there are a few people here who are <clears throat> senior professors of astronomy and physics here at the university, and so I'm about to make myself look like a bit of an idiot in front of them. Uh, not for the first time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it sounds silly, but astronomy is now an incredibly computer-dominated science. And this is something that I didn't really know until I was probably doing honours in physics. And if I'm going to be really honest, I probably didn't fully understand it until I started my PhD. And I sort of, I should have known, given the amount of data that we have access to, but somehow in my head, this was the image that I had of how astronomy worked. Um, and it's sort of fascinating to think of how far we've come and how things have changed. And, you know, I feel in some senses really sorry because this looks horribly painful. Um, and, I mean, we're lucky now. The, the questions that we can ask because we have, you know, computers that can, that can do all of this in seconds, we, we just have a far greater reach and things take far less time. But then, on the other hand, there is a sort of hands-on nature to this interaction with the data that actually almost makes me a bit jealous at the same time. And aren't there still means for sharing images like this, modern images, for citizen scientists to look at and interpret because yes. a human being does a much better job that is true. than a sophisticated program. Yeah. So people, you can get into this line of work um, as a volunteer. Everyone should do Galaxy Zoo. Yeah, Galaxy Quick Zoo, Zooniverse. It's very cool. And, and, and sorry to just interject again. Um, I also hadn't really quite appreciated before I was, you know, doing my PhD and sort of involved in academia that the work from, from projects like Galaxy Zoo is used very seriously, you know, throughout astronomy. It's, it's certainly not, um, you know, a sort of a, a project just for citizen, you know, citizen scientists in sort of a patronizing way or, or in any sense less valuable. It's, it's extremely useful and, you know, I used it in my PhD. I know tons of people who use that data. So if you are interested, um, I highly recommend it because it's fun, it's kind of addictive, it's a great way to procrastinate, and it's really useful, so you should do it. Great. <laughs> okay. So, um, Annie Jump Cannon was a lifelong diarist, and these are her, these are her diaries. So this, having this as a, as a resource was invaluable, even though her handwriting was terrible <laughs> and took a while to master that. Uh, so the uh, director wanted to photograph the, the whole sky, not just the part that could be seen from the Northern Hemisphere. So Harvard established a station near Arequipa, Peru. And, uh, and this is it, in the lee of a volcano, dormant volcano, not extinct. Uh, big surprise. Astronomers are And this, uh, this is a telescope. So going back, there's... There are several telescope buildings in this picture, only one of which is the traditional-looking dome. And inside the dome was this instrument uh, with a 24-inch diameter lens uh, uh, built specifically for this site to really take advantage of the clear skies and, and make wonderful photographs. And 
Pickering advertised for help to raising money to build this instrument. He needed $50,000. Uh, we've been talking about one heiress, Anna Draper, who funded much of the work, but this was another one, Catherine Wolfe Bruce, um, who simply wrote him a check. She was a woman of about 70 years of age, got really interested in astronomy, and uh, was, was happy to pitch in. And Pickering was, was very charming, which helped his fundraising efforts enormously. <laughs> uh, this is a, some of the staff members at Peru having a, a picnic. Wasn't all work. Uh, here's an image from the Southern Hemisphere. This is the Small Magellanic Cloud, uh, actually a satellite galaxy, but nobody knew that at the beginning. And this was the object uh, that really aided Henrietta Swan Leavitt, because in studying images of this object, she found hundreds of variable stars. And those variable stars became the basis for the first uh, big distance scale to be able to determine distances in space, which are very hard to measure. This yes. is something that's, yes. that your research has been involved in. Yes, yeah, so that was uh, reading this book. Um, you know, I sort of, I knew about the relationship using stars and variable stars to calculate distances, but I, this sounds silly, but I hadn't really thought about how it was discovered, and I certainly didn't know that it was a woman who had discovered it. Um, and it was this incredible uh, discovery that the universe was just much, much larger than they'd thought and just sort of completely sort of puffed everything right out is kind of how I think about it. Um, and yeah, it resonated for me because a large part of my PhD work was using something called the Tully-Fisher relation, which is used to measure distances on an extragalactic scale. So this is sort of intragalactic, sort of uh, relatively close by as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's inside the galaxy. Um, uh, but it was sort of suddenly seeing my work in the context of this story that I feel guilty for not knowing about, but was fascinating to, to really discover and think about how surprising this must have been. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so Miss Levitt's discovery for many years was known as the period luminosity relation, but I'm happy to tell you it is fast becoming the Levitt law. It's also shorter, astronomers yes. are lazy. <laughs> And here she is. Here she is. This may not be a staged photo uh, because it's just um, just more likely that someone caught this. Is, this is years after the first picture I showed you. So uh, I think I think she was just caught in the act of working. Um, this is the Annie Jump Cannon Prize, which uh, really was a monetary prize. But Miss Cannon thought it would be nice. Uh, at the beginning, it was awarded every three years. And she took the trouble of each time finding a jeweler to create a little pin that the winner could keep long after the money was spent. And so each prize was original. And this is the prize that was given to Margaret Harwood, uh, which is with her papers in the library at Radcliffe. And it, it's the only one I know of that, that is uh, extant. It's really beautiful. 
Because sorry, can I just that prize was for women? Yes, right? it was yeah. specifically for women. And the interesting thing is that now uh, some women who are candidates for the prize feel. They're not sure they really want it if it's a prize just for women.、Mm. So, this is another issue.、Uh, does that make it a lesser prize? Should it be changed to a prize for a young astronomer and not a young woman? What do you think? Well, okay. The bitter part of me wants to remark that the Nobel Prize is unofficially a prize for men.、Um, <laughs> but that's negative. So. <laughs> Um, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's kind of lovely to think of a tradition of female astronomers, you know, patronising in the good way, becoming patrons Help, of helping each、yes. other along.、Yeah. Um, because I mean, we do lack networks, and I think that it is a good idea to establish those.、Um, on the other hand, if someone awarded me a prize for being a female astronomer, I don't know how I'd feel about it personally.、Um, I think it's it's complicated. There we go. That's my it's complicated. It's my answer. And, We have no voice in the decision anyway, so、um, the prize is still for a woman.、Um, so this is the Harvard group. This is known as the paper doll photograph.、Um, <laughs> Why is and, that? <laughs> and、um, uh, I do, I do love the image. Some of the important people are Miss Levitt and Miss Cannon are both in this picture.、Uh, Mrs. Fleming had already died.、Um, But it does suggest that they were not taken seriously, which is not true.、Uh, and there are some men in the picture too,、uh, being part of the paper dolls. Let's see. Here's Cecilia Payne. So she、um, she did not come as an employee at first, but as one of the first graduate students. Part of the upshot of having all these、uh, female benefactors benefactresses、uh, was that. Uh, a fund was set up, a fellowship fund for young women to come to the observatory and work there for a year, and then go on and work somewhere else. And she had attended、uh, Newnham College in Cambridge, in England, and was informed that there was just no future for her、uh, in England as a woman in astronomy. But she knew about the opportunities at Harvard. And after Pickering died, the new director. Wanted to create a graduate-level program because the observatory wasn't training people in astronomy, and that seemed a, a shortcoming.、Mm. So he took these fellowships for women and turned them into graduate fellowships, and that meant that the whole first crop of graduate students had to be women. He recruited from the women's colleges, and he helped Cecilia Payne get one of these. Pickering fellowships for women, and that's how she came to America. And then she got other prizes and, and awards, earned the first PhD in astronomy at Harvard, and、uh, eventually, and in the course of her PhD, pointed out that the universe was mostly hydrogen. Pretty good for a doctoral dissertation, and、um, went on to become eventually a full professor, but at lower pay. Than male professors. I, love, I actually, I really love that photo. Just looking at, it. and partly I think it's just a trick of what she's wearing. But it just looks like such a modern photograph.、Mm-hmm. You know, this could easily be a black and white photograph taken from, you know, my office.、Um, and、yeah. I love that because, and I actually really love these photographs as well because 
even you have the you know, vivid descriptions of these women and they do really come across as characters, but because it's in the context of a history, I think it is still easy to sometimes separate yourself and think of them as somehow different. But then when you see photographs like this, you know, she looks like I know her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they went through sort of similar challenges and had sort of similar excitements and reasons for doing what they did. And it makes it, it's really immediate. I... Yeah. And here it just says Cecilia Payne because she was Cecilia Payne when this picture was taken. But she became Cecilia Payne Kaposhkin. And that's a story of yeah. how she rescued this Russian astronomer and helped him come to America and married him. <laughs> Um, so the position curator of astronomical photographs continues to the present day and has always uh, been filled by a woman. Uh, this is the same young woman in both images. In one, she's looking at the logbooks kept of all the work on the plates, and in the other image, she's um, pulling out one of the actual plates. They're all stored that way in those uh, paper envelopes. Is it deliberate that that's always been a woman? Or is that just a, an accident? I think it's a little of both. Okay. And uh, it's interesting that Mrs. Draper's money mm. is still paying her salary. <laughs> because she provided for the continuation of the, of the collection. It's, it's care and preservation. And uh, this is obviously a staged photograph also, but um, kind of terrific. Uh, Again, most of the important people are here. That's Cecilia Payne at the drafting table. And uh, Annie Jump Cannon is the one looking down, too busy with her work to be bothered posing for a photograph. Maybe she couldn't hear at the time. Maybe she turned off the hearing aid, <laughs> yeah. I think that's the last one. Thank you. That was, that was really, really lovely, actually. And, and some of these I, I sort of remember from the book, but some of them, they're really, in hearing you explain them, that was, that was great. Is there anything else that you would like to cover before we ask for questions? No, I think we should have questions. All right, okay. Thank you for your wonderful writing and for inspiring so many of us. Thank um, you. You also, you write a lot about people in the past. Who are your modern day um, inspirations and particularly women from science mm. that, you know, the role models that you think younger women today uh, should be looking up to? Yeah, well, I, I mentioned Wendy Friedman. She would certainly be up there. Uh, Lisa Goodman at Harvard. Um, Vera Rubin, who died recently, but she was a giant for me, really a very influential uh, character. I, did you know her? I didn't, but I, I have a funny secondhand story, which is uh, one, of my, one of my friends apparently uh, was giving a guest talk at Oxford and accidentally started explaining rotation curves to Vera Rubin. <laughs> uh, so for those who don't know, Vera Rubin sort of provided this incredible evidence for dark matter by looking at rotation curves of galaxies. And uh, my friend didn't know, you know, didn't, didn't recognize her. And she asked a question at the end of his talk and he started sort of explaining it. And then I think somebody looked really panicked and he realized what he'd done. <laughs> um. Uh, I have men role models too, uh, people at Harvard who've been so helpful. Uh, Owen Gingrich is a name you might not know, but he started as an astronomer and then became what he called a victim of anniversaries. 
So the Kepler and Copernicus anniversaries turned him into a historian of astronomy, and he made a study of uh, Copernicus's book because um, Arthur Kessler, in his book The Sleepwalkers, had dismissed Copernicus's book as something very dull and something that nobody had really read. He called it the book, the book nobody read. And then uh, Owen found a, a first edition Copernicus that had been annotated throughout. And he thought, well, if nobody read it, what are the chances that someone, the first copy I'm looking at, mm. has been not only read but studied? And he spent about 30 years traveling, recovering all the first edition copies of On the Revolutions and seeing who, what, wrote what in the margins. And it turned out everybody had read Copernicus's book. Would, would that have been unusual? Sorry, I'm going to jump in because I've got the microphone. Um, would that have been unusual to have written in a book? Because, I mean, books were valuable, or was that... No, no, it was part of, part of studying. And if you were a teacher, then you would share your notations with your students. And that was one of the things he discovered, that there were, there were schools of thought in the margins. <laughs> That, that could be traced according to who had studied with whom. Oh, that's fascinating. Hi, thank you very much for your talk um, and for this book. Uh, I've been studying the women in Australia who, similar time period, measured the glass plates here. And uh, I really have struggled to find that deep social history um, which I found absolutely joyous within your book. You know, the the beautiful um, sort of descriptions, uh, you, you really get a sense of their social surrounding. You get an idea of what they did, what they ate, where they went, who they were interested in. You, you mentioned the music and the... You know, and and I, I found that really made these women move from beyond the word computer, which mm. they... Uh, uh, that's how my study started. It bugged me that they were called computers. I thought, <laughs> these are people, these are real people. And I'm really Well, at interested. the time, there were no machine computers yeah. to compare them to, so... Yeah, well, I thought, how... Where did you find that material? What, what were the gold moments in your research? Um, well, I was worried about this at the beginning because there were so many people, would it be possible to individualize them and really tell interesting things about their lives? But the observatory was very good about saving correspondence. So centuries of correspondence are still in the Harvard archives. And then there was a time capsule project where many faculty and staff were asked to keep a journal for six weeks, eight weeks, to be buried. But they, they kept their own handwritten copies, so those were accessible. Mrs. Fleming was one of those people. Pickering wrote his own. Um, and then, then there were the diaries. And Miss Cannon was the best of all. And I think that day, because when you work in an archive, 
and and this this is one of always one of the most interesting things to me, how welcoming those places are. You know, I didn't have any official connection with Harvard. I just showed up interested in that history, and everything was open to me. So um, I knew that she had kept diaries, and there were in the uh, listings of boxes of her materials. There were a few boxes labeled Miss Cannon's diaries, so I kind of knew what to expect. But when I opened the box and saw those girlish-looking leather-bound books with the lock and key and others that were much more professional, just five-year diaries, and then there was the whole booklet of her grand tour of Europe after she finished college, and all the programs and flowers that she had pressed in the pages. Those, those are really precious moments, and um, it was great having that kind of material. I have to say, I sort of pity the, the you of 100 years from now. When it's everything sort of is email. I'm glad I won't live that long. Pouring over profiles of astronomers yeah. from the past. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just think, you know, you'd have to, I mean, even just, even just the, the number of correspondence has, has increased, you know, for every valuable email with actual science, you'd have to wade through sort of 15 of, hi, I'm running five minutes late, see you downstairs, you know, but it's, it's amazing how we've changed and, you know, technology, I think, has, has really helped science, but we have lost that permanence and that record. We should probably try and preserve that somehow. Um, uh, thank you, Dava. Uh, Fantastic as usual. Um, yeah, I'm just interested um, in glass itself, because the glass plates are so important. Coincidentally, there was a documentary on uh, television last night about the history of glass, and it's important through so many scientific endeavours, from, you know, original telescopes to and magnifying glasses to help with people reading, who are losing their sight, to obviously optic fibre and uh, mirrors and obviously photographic plates. So just wondering, was there much talk about the development of glass plates in terms of their ability to resolve and what were the problems that were experienced and the innovations that were developed? And of course, I don't know if you meant this, but the irony with the you know, female involvement here is the implication of the glass ceiling, I suspect. That that's was been intentional. Brought up in more, that yeah. was intentional, yeah. I was wondering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just yeah. wondering if you wanted to, to comment on, on that. Yeah, well, I, I did talk some about the glass, especially um, the problem of, of creating the lens for the telescope built with Miss Bruce's money because it wound up taking several years to, to create those perfect lenses. Uh, but even at the beginning, the photographic plates, the first photograph of a star was taken at Harvard around 1850, but they were wet plates. So you, you had to paint the emulsion on the plate just before you put the plate at the end of the telescope. And you couldn't have a long exposure. Uh, and and the, even though they succeeded in getting the picture, it didn't pick up right away. It was another 30 years before photography really caught on, and a big development was the dry plate. So you would, you would get your glass plates with the photographic emulsion already on it, and it was dry so you could have a long exposure, and that was a huge leap. I uh, read your Frank Drake book, 
And I thought, would you like to comment on that and maybe uh, give your opinion of the uh, Drake equation? Okay. So um, Frank Drake uh, is an astronomer who has long thought about the possibility of discovering life uh, elsewhere in the galaxy. And uh, around 1961, he formulated an equation, a now famous Drake equation, which considers the things one needs to know to estimate the likelihood of finding intelligent life elsewhere. And the, uh, the factors were uh, things like the rate of star formation, the number of stars that have planets, uh, the number of those planets that are at a good distance from their star that would be favorable to life, and then on how many, the number of those planets where life actually develops, and then the number of those situations where the life becomes intelligent uh, and develops a capacity for technology. So the, there's a possibility of communication across vast distances. And that turned out to be the key feature. Once a civilization becomes technologically sophisticated, does it survive its own technology? And if it doesn't, then it's not likely that we're going to hear from anybody else. And sometimes I look at the way we're going, and, and I fear for us. Um, do I think there are others out there? I have no idea. There, there's no evidence. Uh, but either way you answer the question, whether there are many who might communicate with us, or if we're the only ones, it's profound either way. Not so much a question, just an observation related to the last question. Um, that Drake equation would also depend on defining intelligence, wouldn't it? Yes. And so there are intelligent creatures on Earth that are not capable of technological communication across... Which, of course, reminds me of Douglas Adams's uh, quote about uh, humans thinking they're the greatest species on Earth yeah. because of all the technology, and whereas dolphins just swim around in the ocean. Right. Dolphins right. think they're the most intelligent species for the same reason. <laughs> I was going to either phrase this as a question, but I must also want to have a, have a go at sort of trying to answer it too, I think. Mine, I got thinking about science pay, not just for women, but science pay in general. Yeah. Scientists want to do what they want to do, and they want to do it whether they're paid or not. And people who run corporations and the like don't uh, exploit that fact. But I think that what's actually happened, and I think that there was a big sort of award ceremony run by Mark Zuckerberg, in which he sort of basically sort of ran it like a Hollywood Oscars sort of thing. And of course, actors also like to... So I think more and bigger prizes, 
prizes for everything conceivable. More longitude prizes. <laughs> might be might yeah. be the way to actually go to actually get better pay for scientists, and maybe the women can bring up to the come up to the men then. <laughs> Especially okay. if there are special prizes for the women, I think they might as well be. So that's all I have to say, really. <laughs> um, I haven't got to this part of the book yet, but um, I don't mind having spoilers. I'm just interested in how they came up with the classification of stars, which led to "Oh, be a fine girl, kiss me right now, sweetie" kind of thing. <laughs> and because of all of that we have the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, and I don't think it ever would have happened if they hadn't sat down and worked out classifications. So how do they come up with the classifications in that format of, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me right now, sweetie? Uh, so the, um, the original impetus for this project was uh, to, to photograph the spectra of the stars, the, like that image of the, uh, the little strips of starlight spread out, and to look at the spectra and try to see patterns in the lines and divide up the stars into categories by the way the line patterns looked. So that was the first challenge Ms. Mrs. Fleming took on. And she labeled her categories with letters of the alphabet in alphabetical order. But over the years, as other people refined the system, streamlined it, dropped a lot of categories, and, and took other patterns into consideration, mostly Miss Cannon, she had it organized into the O, B, A, F, G, K, M. So that was really her doing, which turned out to reflect a temperature difference from, from hottest to coolest. Uh, and at the beginning, nobody knew what it would signify. You know, it was completely just struggling to see some kind of pattern that would create some system for the stars. And so juggling the letters made a system that, that was orderly. That really is sort of a... And at, at the beginning, no, no one knew what it might signify. You know, why were they different? Were they chemically different? Were they at different stages of a life cycle? Anything was possible. And they hoped that by creating the taxonomy, they would figure it out. And they did. I think that's just such a great example of, you know, the whole transitional phase of astronomy from, you know, observing to understanding the physics. It's kind of a, a potted version of that whole story in that one classification system and the, the sort of ugly <laughs> rearrangement of the letters. Yeah, it did, it did look awkward and arbitrary and it bothered some people. A lot of people felt, gee, we should change this. We should have a different system. And that was open for debate all the time. There were many meetings to discuss, but somehow it survived. Nobody, kind of like the healthcare in America, you know, they couldn't wanted to replace it, but didn't have anything better. Um, just a question for what comes next for those of us that are fans and have read everything else. Do we get to look forward to something else? Have you got oh, new thank projects? You. I, I'm, I'm sorry to say I don't have another idea. 
Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really working on anything else. Um, I'm hopeful something will come along, but I'm, I'm not overconfident because um, up until now, I've always had the next idea. So I'm, I'm feeling a little adrift. <laughs> the Tully Fisher There's, relation? <laughs> it could happen. No, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, hello. Oh, I was wondering, this group seems a very successful... Where are you? Oh, there you right are. Here. Okay. Sorry. Female group. Um, do you think their success was because they had slightly different drivers or they approached the the question differently from the conventional male sort of approach? Well, I don't think anybody else was doing what they were doing. Um, astronomy, when, when this got started, astronomy was much more about determining the positions of the stars and the orbits of asteroids and comets. Most computing was about that. Um, so this was a a breakthrough project was the sort of thing that amateurs were interested in at that time. And Mrs. Draper's husband had been a, a really accomplished amateur astronomer, and she and he worked together with this goal in mind, and then he suddenly died quite young. So that motivated her to give her fortune to the director at Harvard to carry on the work in her husband's name. And the sudden tripling of the observatory's budget uh, enabled the director to hire a lot of women to do the work. So it was a, the situation was unusual in many ways. I think we've got time for one more question. There was one more right here. Um, I was interested in your comment that uh, you don't have an idea for the next book. I, I find that uh, your books are appealing to me because they reflect the 99% perspiration to get a result, whether it's creating a clock or some taxonomy for stars or whatever. Uh, and that, to me, indicates a certain approach or a certain attitude that uh, a person takes in life because not everyone does it. Uh, and then... I remembered that you said that uh, your parents interested you in science and mm -hmm. then you went to science and you couldn't get a job and you went into, into um, newspaper work and then ultimately into, into writing about scientists. Uh, and that led me then to say, well, where does this uh, perspiration come from? Because writing a book and researching a book, as you've pointed out to us, is like researching the stars or trying to find a better clock <laughs> system to work. Uh, and that then raised the question in my mind, you said that your parents inspired you. And then as you spoke to me and about your research, there's an indication that not only does an inspiration to do this heavy level of research come from a parent, but also comes from a mentor, the head of a the directorate of a, a research, for instance. Uh, and to get that stage, I presume there's a teacher involved, probably at, at your school, maybe they reinforced or caught your mind. So 
My question is, and it's a once-off uh, researcher that you have been, how much of this commitment to sit down and really go into a lot of detailed work, how much of that is a function of a parental influence? How much is it a function of a teacher's influence? And how much is it due to a mentor coming along and um, promoting and reinforcing what you wanted to do? I don't know. <laughs> it would be hard for me to, to, to answer what part each played. I mean, anyone's life is so shaped by, by positive influence, negative experiences, coincidences, um, I just, I just don't know how to answer it, but I'll keep thinking about it. Thank, thank you. I'd like to thank you all for attending tonight, but particularly like to thank um, Dave and Jess. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.